Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. been dealing with this series, Faith in Action, Building God's Kingdom in Challenging Times. We're going to be looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I know we just had our Old Testament and New Testament scripture reading, and I'm getting ready to read a lengthy portion myself because I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so you will have to fight and battle uh, to follow along and to uh, be able to focus and concentrate on the words that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that we are, uh, we are considering because there are some similarities between the Corinthian church and the American church today, and that is this, they're both carnal. Verse number 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as by, or through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, 
Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord and it is eternally true. We started this series titled Faith in Action, Building God's Kingdom in Challenging Times, which is a survey or an overview of First Corinthians chapter or first and second Corinthians, excuse me. So our purpose here is to constructively deal with the deconstruction of Western Christianity. And listen, I have been at this a long time and I have learned over these many years that it is all going to boil down to one thing. It's going to boil down to whether we will acknowledge that we are at the end of our rope and then decide that we are going to devote ourselves to the Lord and his work and not our own pleasure and our own life. That's what it's going to boil down to, is when the church finally comes to that uh, conclusion, you might say. So we are facing difficult times, and I cannot emphasize the seriousness of our situation. I wish I actually could overemphasize it, because that would mean that we were beginning, at least, to understand the dire consequences of our sin and the reality that Christianity in the West is, is completely deconstructed. Now, I know it sounds like I'm saying that all is lost. And this whole sermon series is kind of designed around that, right? And in a sense, I am saying all is lost. Benjamin Franklin said, lost time is never found again. That is completely lost. What's done is done. And we can't redo it. We don't get a do-over. We cannot go back and change the past. But at the same time, all is not lost. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, if we would begin to walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So it's not all lost in that sense. If we would redeem the time. I am saying that everything is lost in what was built in Western Christendom because it has been leveled to the ground. We, we, we have to come to that reality. We cannot continue to play this fantasy religious game. We have to come to the reality that Christendom is completely leveled. It's been completely destroyed. And what is passing as Christian would not be recognized. If you used to go back to the Nicene Creed, 325 AD, bring those people to 2023, they would not recognize this as Christianity. It might be Americanism. It might be democracy. 
It might be secular humanism, but it is not Christianity. So Christendom has been leveled to the ground, but everything is not lost in that nothing is impossible for God. His hand is not shortened that it cannot save. As a matter of fact, we could witness a great revival and a great work of God if we would surrender ourselves like the first century Christians. So what that means is this. As we consider this faith in action and building God's kingdom in challenging times, it means that it's going to take full commitment on our part if we're going to salvage and rebuild out of these ruins. Which is simply to say that we need a revival of authentic Christianity. Let's listen to this authentic Christianity in the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, notice what it says. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else... While the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is also the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. And this is true Christianity that Jesus was describing there in Luke. And it is also the kind of Christianity that is needed to counter the full commitment of those who are antichrist today. I know that we are dealing with a lot of negative things and hard things, but that is the day that we live in. Get over it. Right? As some of my family members say, put on your big boy pants. Or, as Bodie Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. And that is something we need to learn to do, right? Really, truly. If it is truth and it hurts, we should receive it and acknowledge that it hurts because we need to feel the pain. We need to feel the pain of the reality of our situation. Pain is what keeps you from doing things that have negative consequences. Unfortunately, we are still at the stage where we get offended instead. Instead, we just get mad. And 
we won't be back. Right? We get offended, we get mad, rather than receive the truth and seek to correct our lives in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is what we are dealing with because that is one form of sectarianism that we began to talk about last week. And so today what we're going to discuss is the cure for sectarianism. Now this is one of the carnal issues that the Corinthian church had to deal with in the first century. And as we mentioned, it's the first thing Paul starts off with. Think of all the other issues going on, and he starts off with their divisiveness. And the reason why they, were, had, so, the reason why they had so much division is because they were carnal. Paul has been very explicit in explaining that, right? As we looked at last week and as we read here today, that their carnality is what produces division amongst themselves. And so they were a carnal church in every way, just like we are today. I mean, we mentioned last week the things that Paul had to deal with here at the Corinthian church, immorality and sexual sin. As a matter of fact, one of the cases was incestuous. Yeah, that was the church at Corinth. Um, the church today has a lot of immorality and sexual sin. We just don't deal with it. We just hide it, sweep it under the rug. Litigation against fellow believers in civil courts, which actually is a rejection of the government of the church, which is the government of Christ. Misunderstanding spiritual gifts, improper celebration of the Lord's Supper. I mean, it was a drunken festival. That's about all it amounted to here in the church at Corinth. The denial of the resurrection, worldly wisdom and philosophical influences, improper conduct in worship services, and that's just a few of the problems that was rampant in the church at Corinth, which is why Paul called them carnal. And it's the reason why someone should stand up and look at the American church and call it carnal. So the first step in correcting those things, according to Paul's chronology and order of events, is to first deal with the carnality of division and factualism. The reason why we have so much disunity among Orthodox Christians that has resulted in sectarian schisms is because there is a lack of unity and peace in the truth of Jesus Christ. We are fragmented and ineffective because of our sinful dispositions and actions. When we walk in sin, this is a truth. So if I was Matthew Henry, in his commentary, whenever Matthew Henry wants to make a point, he writes, note, comma. So note, when we stop, or when, or excuse me, note, <laughs> I'm going to have a typo. When, when we walk in sin, we stop working for the edification of the church and start tearing down the church in order to exalt our own self-righteousness, which is sectarianism. We should be zealous for the truth, yes. We should be zealous for the truth, yes. We should be zealous for the truth, yes. But we should not be bigoted in the truth. Sin, like self-righteousness, pride, envy, strife, hatred, and even lust, 
causes us to develop our own religion based on our own desires, preferences, and innovations. As, and as a result, we have this disposition to dissent from the established faith in order to form new sects, new groups. We divide. The Scottish Presbyterian James Durham, as we mentioned last week, back in the 1600s, wrote this, All, especially ministers, should have a deep impression of how terrible the plague of division is. If we thought of God as angry at a church and at ministers in a time of division, it is likely that people would be in a better condition to speak concerning healing. Some time should be bestowed on this, therefore, to let this consideration sink down in the soul so that the Lord's hand in it is recognized. The many sad consequences of division should be brought before the mind and the heart should be seriously affected and humbled with this. Just as if sword, pestilence, or fire were threatened. Indeed, it is as if the Lord were spitting in ministers' faces, rubbing shame on them and threatening to make them despicable. Blast the ordinances in their hands. Bring to nothing their authority among the people. Remove the hedges of the visible church to let in boars and wolves to spoil the vines and to destroy the flock. And in a word to remove his candlestick. And that is exactly what has happened to us today. He nailed it way back there in the early 1600s. And we have seen it come to fruition. You see, we have came to a full and complete devastation and destruction in our day, as St. Peter wrote in his first letter in chapter 4 and verse 11, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the reason why we are dealing with these subjects is because judgment is upon us. Judgment is upon the church of God. And so, it's because, you know, we were not loyal to the religion of Jesus Christ the ancient faith, but we have been given over to our own desires and our own innovations. And so if this judgment is upon us, think of this, what's going to be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, Thomas Manton identified what the end is going to be. He was another English Puritan in the 1600s who wrote this, divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. So just look at the world around you and you can measure what's going on in the church. Among Orthodox Bible-believing Christians, division has become a way of life. But this was not and is not the desire of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, who said in John chapter 13 and verse 33, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And we have made it very clear to the world that we do not have love for one another in the church. 
Notice, he did not say that the world will know you were his disciples by our divisions, by our strife, by our hatred, by our unforgiveness, by our prejudices, by our pettiness. No, it is by our love one for another. It is within the context of whom the Father has given to the Son those out of the world who now belong to the Father and the Son who have kept God's word. Jesus, in his high priestly office over the church, prayed concerning them in John chapter 17, first of all, that the Father would glorify him so that he could glorify the Father for eternal life for those whom the Father had given him, that they might know God and Jesus Christ, for the protection of his disciples from the evil one, for the unity of believers, that they would be one just as Jesus and the Father are one, that, number five, that his joy might be fulfilled in his disciples, six, for the sanctification, which is the spiritual growth and progress, uh, spiritual growth and holiness of believers, Um, for their sanctification through the truth of God's word. Seventh, not only did Jesus pray for those things for his immediate disciples, but also for those who would believe on them, on him in the future through their message. And his prayer was that all believers would be united. And then eighth, he prayed for his presence and glory to be revealed among his followers so that they would be with him and see him in all his glory. And then ninth, he prayed for the Father's love to be in believers, just as the Father's love was in him. And yet, we either become sectarian in unlawful division over secondary and indifferent things, or, and usually at the same time, we become corrupt and unify with heresy and sin. We divide with true Christians over petty things. And we align ourselves with sin and have fellowship with the wicked. Isn't that nuts? Isn't that crazy? It's the way it works though, right? So what is the cure for our ungodly division in the church? First of all, the mind of Christ. Notice in verse number 10 of Uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Remember, we looked at this last week. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same spirit. That, or the same judgment, sorry. That is a command. The full weight of the gospel the full weight of the word, the full weight of Jesus Christ who commissioned Paul to write this is here on this command. And what is the command? The command is to be united, joined together. You know one of the biggest complaints that the world has of us. And, you know, and they're not parsing it down to all this, you know, deep doctrinal aspects. I mean, they understand the reason why we are not united in evil things. That's, I mean, you know, yeah, they have complaints about that, but they're usually the extreme segments of society 
But the average Joe out here is not condemning us because we're not going along with gender fluidity. He's not condemning us because we're not joining up on the transsexual bandwagon. He understands why we're opposed to that and why we are not uniting with those things. No, his complaint is why we can't unite with one another and why we are always dividing amongst ourselves. You hear that complaint over and over and over again. Many times it's even through experiences that they have encountered in the church. That's the reason why in verse number 13, Paul asked the Corinthians, is Christ divided? I mean, that's a serious question. Is Christ divided or is he one? And that's a rhetorical question that he's asking the Corinthians to say you should not be divided either. That you should be one. It's like, is Christ schizophrenic? Does Christ have multiple personalities? Of course not, and neither should the body of Christ. We should speak the same thing, which is what? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 16, Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Seriously, which one of us knows more than God? Anybody here? Any hands raised? Anyone here want to stand up? Give testimony to how much more you know than God. You who are finite know more than he who is infinite. Well, no, of course. We don't know more than God. Therefore, there's something that we need to have because we're a bunch of morons, right? I mean, at the very least, in comparison to God, we're a bunch of morons, right? I think that's probably even true more than just in relation to God, but he says, who has the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? No, God doesn't need our instruction. Notice what he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We need his instruction. We need his mind. God does not need to think like us. We need to think like him. You see, if we are left to ourselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, to these Corinthians, he says, listen, I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So in other words, Paul didn't have very much confidence that the Corinthians were going to fare any better than Eve. And you're not. You are a son of Adam, you are a son of Eve, and you're not going to fare any better. If the serpent was able to deceive Eve, the serpent will deceive you. Why? Because our pride and self-righteousness and envy and strife and hatred and lust and idolatry and covetousness and so on 
complicates things because it rejects the simplicity of Christ in favor of our own individual desires, preferences, innovations, and opinions. That is not the mind of Christ. Your mind is not Christ's mind. What we need is the mind of Christ, and that's where the simplicity is. What is the simplicity? Speaking of the Son, the second person of the Trinity who is revealed in the flesh as Jesus, John said of him in his gospel in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then you skip down to verse 14, and it says... And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, John, in his epistle, which is 1 John chapter 1, he begins by saying, that which was from the beginning. Sounds like the gospel of John chapter 1, right? That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with Uh, the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So where does this fellowship reside? In the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the mind of Christ through his word? You see, because there are three bearing witness in heaven, according to John in his first epistle, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now, we're not going to get into all three of them, Here this morning, we're just focusing here upon the Word, Jesus Christ. You see, it's the Word of God that was revealed to us through Jesus Christ because He is the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but it is the Word of Christ that is revealed and manifested to us that we are to receive and to trust in. That was the problem. Eve did not trust the word of God. She trusted her own word. The problem with Adam is that he did not trust the word of God. He trusted Eve's word. Well, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. So the mind of Christ is the revelation of his thoughts. And how do we reveal our thoughts? Through words. That is the reason why Isaiah says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, is because there is no light in them. That's what we call... Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. It's not my opinions, not my preferences, not my innovations. It's what the Word has spoken. 
2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How do we know the mind of Christ? Through the words of Christ. It is inspired because they are his words. In other words, they are divine. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What Paul's saying is, is that scripture, as has been handed down to us, is divine because they are the words of Christ. They're the words of God. But also notice what Paul says. As we think about having the mind of Christ... Paul tells the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren. Now, who was commissioned by Jesus Christ to make sure that the words of Christ were made known throughout the whole world? Who was commissioned by Jesus to do that? The apostles, right? So, they are the ones who wrote the New Testament. They're the ones who established the churches. They're the ones who ordered the churches. They're the ones who set down how the churches were to operate in every characteristic and aspect of that. So if you can trace it back to the apostles, then it comes from Christ. So Paul says to the second or to the Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Whether by word, and he's talking about their spoken word, or by epistle, their letters. Because the apostles were commissioned by Christ to order and the church. Christ ordained the church, and they ordered the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in talking to the Corinthians, Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. The point here is just this. That we have the inspired word of God, but we can also understand what the apostles did did in history in the churches and what they established and what they ordered therefore it's not by the wisdom of men but in Christ the wisdom and power of God that's what we should be looking to and that's what we should be trusting the mind of Christ you see that's why Paul says To the Corinthians here, our boast is in Jesus Christ. It's not the wisdom of men. It's not all these philosophical uh, janglings of all these men who think they're smarter than what they are. Our boast is in Jesus Christ alone. We are to be all about Jesus Christ, all about his word, all about his commission, all about his worship, all about his order all about his commandments, all about his sacraments, all about everything that has to do with Christ. He is to be our all in all. 
This is why he has been given all things by the Father. He's been made both Lord and Christ. He is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Therefore, Paul says that we are not to be divided. We are to speak the same things. See, there's a standard that we are to adhere to as believers. If we are going to cure our divisions, we must have the mind of Christ. We must be submitted to what Christ has said, what Christ revealed through his prophets and his apostles, both in Holy Scripture and that work of ordering the churches in the first century. If we're going to be united, we have to have the mind of Christ, Paul says. Because Christ is what unites. Jesus Christ is a uniter. He is a reconciler. And Jesus Christ is sitting on the right hand of God, putting all of his enemies under his footstool. Why? Because he's reconciling this world unto himself and unto his Father. He's a reconciler. And so if we are going to have unity, and if we are going to be reconciled to one another, what then is essential? It is simply this, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's what it boils down to. Whether we are going to believe And if we truly believe, then surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is the thing that's going to unite us. Next week, we'll look at the second thing. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And that is to stop behaving like mere men. And start behaving like Christ. Father, oh, when we consider our own failings and our own sinfulness, there are times where we just want to cry out in desperation, thinking that all is lost. But we are thankful all is not lost, because this is the work that you came to do in saving us from our sins, in cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, the reason why we see this work not, being, not going forth is because we have rebelled against you, we have turned away from you, and we are not receptive of your grace. Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts and that you would cause us to fall down before you in complete and absolute surrender. And so as we come to this table to remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his body being broken and his blood being shed, we first of all remember that he came to give all 
for the salvation of the world and for the salvation of us here this morning. Lord, we pray that our response to what he freely gave us would be to completely surrender ourselves and give all to him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.